Good to see everybody. Yeah, Tony feels terrible, not just physically, but he, three weeks in a row, not being with your church, he's just dying on the inside. So, but uh, he called me actually almost a week ago because he wasn't sure how long the quarantine was going to last, right? He said, Nate, do you mind? Tony and I served together for almost 10 years uh, at a church here in town. He was the youth pastor, and I was the children's pastor there. And so we've been really good friends for a long time. And and uh, so he said, do you mind just keeping something in your back pocket just in case this quarantine goes longer than I thought? And then... And then uh, by Thursday, he had a fever, and he was like, I don't even want to be near people, you know, feeling under the weather. So we'll be praying for you, Tony, and uh, I feel really honored to be here today. I mean, what a dysfunctional church. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, not this one, not this one, sorry. I was segueing into my sermon, sorry there. No, that's what Paul was probably thinking when he wrote to the church of Corinth. Sorry, I didn't make that clear. Okay. If you thought that was about you, you know, you should spend some time with Jesus. Okay, so <laughs> Paul has to write this letter to Corinth. He, and if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to Paul's first letter to Corinth. And as soon as somebody with a Bible from the Pews knows what page number that is. Shout that out in case someone else is using a pew Bible. Because that would be good. I meant to do that before we started and I forgot. So if you're using a pew Bible, it's 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. That means it's near the last half of your scriptures. Paul planted this church in Corinth on, on his second missionary journey. He had left Antioch and was traveling, sharing the good news of Jesus uh, to people who had never heard before. And uh, the, and he stayed in Corinth for a couple of years. Okay, so what page number? 923. Excellent, thank you. So if you're using a pew Bible, it's 923. So he writes this letter because he finds out that they're having some problems. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time and spent time in churches, you know churches have problems. And one of the problems in Corinth was division, that they were not united. You know, I wish I could find a contemporary example of division in our country. And just nothing came to mind. So we're just going to pretend that we know what division is like, right? Um, whether it's vaccines or masks or Republican or Democrat or whatever it is, there's division everywhere. And, and um, I think Paul's letter here, we're going to look at the first two chapters. I think Paul's letter talking to the church about division within their within their group uh, can help us think about division that we might experience, whether it's in the church or in our other relationships, maybe even in our country. So let's take a look at what's going on here. First Corinthians chapter one, we're going to look at verses 10 to 13, just to lay out the situation here. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. 
What I mean is this, that each one of you says, well, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. Yeah, but I follow Jesus. You know, I follow the Christ. Is Christ divided? Does Christ have like these little mini factions? Is Is this what Jesus came to do? was to create these little factions? That's the question Paul asked. Does does Jesus have divisions? Is Christ divided up? Was Paul crucified? Why is he why why are you holding me up as some hero? I wasn't the one that died for you, right? Worshiping Christ is supposed to bring unity because we all are focused on the one Christ. The one who died for us. So in this humility, we're all drawn to him. And as we're drawn to him, we're all begin to be drawn to each other. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course you weren't. Of course you weren't. So here's this situation of division. I, you know, I imagine these little Barney Fifes walking around the church. Yep. You know, got my, got my little Bible in my back pocket, my one Bible that the sheriff lets me carry, and I follow Paul. Yeah, I personally, I know Paul personally. You know, if you need me to introduce me to you, him to you, you know, just let me know. Where, where does this come from? Now, now, Corinth was a Gentile. These are Gentiles. These are people who, they were idolaters beforehand. And they've only been Christian, some of them, for a couple of years. So, you know, it takes time for that culture to change, for for the Spirit of Christ working in people to change their loves and their desires and their priorities and their relationships. That takes time. People are complicated things, aren't we? Right? So it takes time. So where did this come from? Well, I'm going to jump to chapter 3 for a second. And Paul kind of, wow, he doesn't pull any punches here. In chapter 3 of his letter, he says, Now, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. So he's making some kind of a contrast between what it means to be spiritual and what it means to be of the flesh. He's making some kind of a contrast there, right? I, and then he says, people of the flesh, he kind of compares that to being infants in Christ. You're still young in your understanding and in your experience of walking with Jesus. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. What does he, what does he mean of the flesh? Here it is. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? And behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So following Jesus must mean, in some sense, that you become higher, fuller in your humanity. You become what you were originally made to be. So we know that the story of the scriptures goes like this, right? That there was creation and God made everything perfect. And then there was the fall. There was this, this moral rebellion against God and it 
did more than just damage the relationship between the first people and God. It actually ended up cursing the earth so that all the systems that were working perfectly together no longer work well together. And so the whole rest of the Bible, after Genesis chapter 3 where that fall happens, the whole rest of the Bible is about God repairing what we've broken. And that repair could be called restoration, it could be called redemption, right? But it's the restoring back of the goodness and the perfection that God originally intended for all creation to be. And so in this process of restoring, you and I, as we follow Christ, we become part of that restoration. So that we ourselves are being restored and relationships that we're involved in are becoming restored. And even the culture in which we live in should be becoming restored. This is why justice is so important to a believer. Because justice is the restoration of right things and right order. And that's what God is doing in the world. So that a Christian is not just, oh, now God has made me his child and I just can't wait to get to heaven. There's this, this desire that all believers have as they, as their heart begins to uh, resonate with Jesus' heart. We begin to get this desire to see restoration, to see reconciliation, to see redemption, to see repair. We, we want to see that in the world around us. We want to see it in our church. We want to see it in ourselves. We want to stop doing the things we used to do and start doing the things we want to do. The, the godly things that we long to do and the godly people we long to be. And yet there's this growth process. There's this movement from being an infant still in the flesh to maturity. There's this process. And the Corinthians in this process of being redeemed are still kind of low on the growth scale. And I get a little bit of a sense from Paul that maybe they're not where they should be by now. You know, do you, did you sense that? You know, I wanted to get you to a place of maturity, but you're still not able to take on some of these teachings because you're living with jealousy. You're living with, see, here's this thing. You still want to lift yourself up, Right? So, an athlete, I don't care how fast I am, just so that I'm faster than you. And the businessman, is, I don't care, I I don't really care how rich I am, just so I'm richer than you. Right? And the scholar says, I don't really care how smart I am, just so everyone thinks I'm smarter than you. It's just this idea. I don't, I don't care what social caste I fall in just so that I seem better than you. This is this jealousy, this comparison, this drive to be better than others. This is, I need to be right. I need to prove that you're wrong. And God's desire for His church is unity. So you can see how this this desire to be above others is kind of working against God's desire to see unity in the church. Can you see how that would work? 
And so Paul's like, it's because you want to be better than others. And the, it's interesting, you know, you notice that I jumped from chapter one to chapter three there. So what I want to do now is spend the rest of the morning talking about what Paul says in between. Okay, so he's talking about divisions at the beginning of chapter 1, and he's talking about them again in the beginning of chapter 3, but I want to talk about what he says in the middle there. Okay? Because what he's going to do is he's going to describe who God is and how he works, and really what the gospel is. And when we look more clearly at the gospel... We're going to need, and and if our hearts are really open to it, then we're going to realize we need to step back from this quarreling. We're going to need to kind of put aside this desire to be better than others because that's not how God works. And that's not how I was saved. That's not what the gospel is. And so I need to step back from that. And when I step back from the jealousy, when I step back from the striving, what I'm going to find is that the Spirit of God is going to bring unity in the church. Okay, so let's take a look at that. And, and what Paul's going to do is he's going to talk about different reactions to the gospel. As Paul has gone around and traveled and spoke, his, his process when he would go into a town, let's say Corinth, for example, very first thing he would do is he would go to a synagogue. This was his modus operandi. This is how he worked. He would go to a synagogue and share the gospel. Jesus is the Messiah. And there would almost always be this split reaction. And the Jewish leadership would reject it. And then after going to the synagogue and after being rejected, although many would be saved, they usually weren't the influential religious people who were, uh, then he would be kind of kicked out of the synagogue. And so then he would go to the Gentile. And what Paul has found is that the Jewish person and the Gentile person both have this reason not to receive the gospel. But there are different reasons for not receiving the gospel. The human flesh rejects the gospel, rejects Jesus on the cross for my sins, is rejected, but for two different reasons. Okay? The Greek person says, that's stupid. That's dumb. And we're going to look in that. Resurrection from the dead is silly and superstitious. That's the Greek response to the gospel. And the Jewish response to the gospel is, no, the Messiah is not weak. The Messiah doesn't die. The Messiah comes to conquer. So God doesn't work the way you say he's working. God works the way I'm expecting him, which is he's going to come and vindicate me. That's the Jewish response. And so we find that both the Greek and the Jew... And we're going to find kind of elements of their thought systems in our life today, too. They both reject the gospel. Okay, so let's take a look at that's dumb. Someone dying and rising again, that's dumb. Okay, so that's how the Greeks look at it. So this, let's take a look. First Corinthians, what are we looking at? Chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says this, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Folly just means it's silly, it's it's stupid, it's ridiculous. There's a little jester's hat. You know, what's a jester? A jester is that, that inane entertainment that the king will bring on just because he's goofy, right? And, and that's how people, that's how the Greeks 
see the gospel. It's folly. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Because it's written, and now he quotes Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Okay, so what he's saying is that the Greeks love wisdom. They're very proud of Socrates and Plato and, you know, this is civilization. This is, this is the higher level of being a human, right? Is ethics and philosophy. And we look high on those who have skill in rhetoric and can lay out a rational argument and beat down those who can't, right? We lift up high those who are intelligent. And we reject superstition. Okay, so let's take an example of this. I want to put a little bit of flesh on what this looks like in Paul's life. So Paul experienced this rejection of the gospel due to its silliness. Okay, let's turn real quick to Acts chapter 17. We're going to move around just a little just to see this picture. And some of you may be familiar with Acts 17. Acts is the story, in in chapter 17, is the story of Paul going into a Greek city, Athens. Okay? And Athens had this place called the Areopagus, where all these hooty-tooty philosophers would come and hooty-tooty their hooty-tootiness around, right? And, And show off about how brilliant they are. And try to outdo each other in their intellectual brilliance. And so Paul has been, he went to the synagogue and then he was rejected. And so now he's kind of just talking in the streets to people. And some people from the Areopagus hear him and they're like, we would like you to come to our little enclave and and share what you're sharing because this is a new teaching. So Acts chapter 17, verse, let's start with 21. Now all the Athenians... That's the people of Athens. And even the foreigners who live there, they would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now he goes into the gospel. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Okay, so now let's turn down to verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
boom. And now there's this sudden change in the temperature of the room. Okay, so he's saying God created everything and he's the Lord of everything and he's going to judge you. So far that sounds pretty much like every religion, right? And he's going to judge you through a man. Ooh, that sounds a little weird. That's different. You're going to have to give me a little bit of evidence on that one. Okay, here's the evidence. The man rose from the dead. Okay, now now you've just crossed the line. Now you went from being interesting to being foolish. You see, because this is what happens. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And that's it right there. That's superstitious and silly. Whereas, you read some people who are against Christianity, and they make it sound like those buffoons that lived thousands of years ago were all superstitious and they all believed in raising of the dead and miracles and all these things. No, they didn't. When Jesus did miracles, people were amazed. Why? Because miracles don't happen. They didn't expect it. They were people like you and I. Now, they weren't post-enlightenment like you and I are, with this raising up of rationality as if our reason is the apex of what it means to be human or something. But but they didn't they weren't all superstitious, magical thinking people. The Greeks weren't. And so when you would go into their group and say Jesus rose from the dead, that's ridiculous. There's something about preaching the gospel that's going to make you look goofy. And and people are going to go to your co-workers and say, don't drink his Kool-Aid, you know. Don't listen to her. She's a wackadoodle. Jesus this, Jesus that, right? Rising from the dead. Everybody knows you can't rise from the dead. Isn't that what people today think, Right? Paul says this is going to be in order to accept the gospel, you need to reject the wisdom that you've built up till now. And some people aren't willing to do that. Some people, they've built their life on the wisdom that they know. Science. And for you to say, in order to be saved, you have to believe that someone rose from the dead is so earth-shattering, it's too scary, they won't do it. Or too ridiculous. The word I'm thinking of right now is humbling. And we're going to look at that again. To accept the gospel, you have to humble your intellect and say... That God's wisdom in becoming flesh himself and dying on the cross for me is greater than my wisdom. You and I in a million years could never have come up with this plan on how to save the whole world. 
how to restore all things. Colossians 1 says, Jesus by his blood is reconciling all things to the Father, right? You and I could never have come up with this plan. We aren't wise enough. How do I balance justice? I'm a sinner. That deserves death. I've rebelled against the holy creator. Justice demands a price. Bending the rules isn't allowed. How do I keep justice and marry it to mercy? How is God going to do that? That's quite the conundrum. But in God's wisdom, he himself took the wages of sin on himself so that justice was paid and mercy was let loose at the same time. I hope we have not gotten so used to the gospel that that doesn't amaze us anymore. That God figured it out. He solved it. And our wisdom is like foolishness. God laughs at our wisdom. Right? In order to accept the crucifixion and how God is bringing righteousness back into his creation, we have to humbly reject our former wisdom. And that's why the Greeks would reject the gospel. Do you see this idea of humbling being related to unity? Okay, remember, we're talking about unity, right? And the answer to unity is the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is going to humble us. Unity comes through humility, and getting into the gospel requires humility. So once I begin to break down my own wisdom, I stop trusting my own thoughts, right? Maybe the door to unity is going to open up. Maybe the reconciliation of all things is possible. If in humility I accept the gospel, then in humility I will accept you. Right? And that's going to bring unity. But foolishness wasn't the only problem with the gospel. The Jews had a problem with the, with the gospel too, and it wasn't that it was folly. Okay? The Jews had a problem too. See, the Jews were expecting a Messiah that was going to crush all their enemies. We're going to pop back down to 1 Corinthians again. 1 Corinthians. Now let's take a look at chapter 1, verse 22. It says, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. See, the Jews, they didn't treasure wisdom so much as they treasured strength. They treasured victory. They treasured vindication. They had lived for centuries under oppression with this promise from God that they kept faithfully and diligently passing on from one generation to another. Yes, we're oppressed now, but when God comes, we'll be set free. We'll be proven right. We'll be proven that we were faithful to his prophets, except that they weren't faithful to his prophets. They killed his prophets. 
So the Jews had this idea of how God works. And God is a God of victory. He is a God of power. He is a God of strength. And that is true. When we say God is sovereign, and we just did this morning in one of our songs, when we say God is sovereign, necessarily we're saying he is strong because strength will overcome God if he's not strong enough and then that will rule over him and he won't be sovereign anymore, right? So God, in order to be sovereign, must be the strongest. And so when he comes, he's going to come in strength because he's strong. Except he came like Jesus. Humble. And crucified. That's, no, that's not how God works. Cause, cause I've been studying the Bible for a really long time and I know what God is like and that's not God. I have a very well established understanding of spiritual truth and the gospel isn't right. That's, that's what the Jews are saying. Let's take a look. Matthew chapter 12. Let's put some flesh on it. Matthew chapter 12. Let's look at the Jews rejecting the gospel because Jesus isn't strong enough. Uh, they, it, it, Paul says the Jews are looking for signs and the Greeks are looking for wisdom. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 12 real quick. We're going to see the scribes and the Pharisees. These are two different groups that are religious leaders in Jesus' time. Verse 38, chapter 12, verse 38. And some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus and they said, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We're looking for proof of your authority. We need something fantastic. You know, I remember when Elijah was proving that Yahweh is God, that fire came down from heaven. Can you do that sign, Jesus? We want to see a sign. And if we don't see a sign then we won't believe because we know God's going to come in strength. He's not going to come in this soil-footed, uneducated little preacher boy. He's going to come with power. So, so, so give us a sign. And Jesus' answer, and it doesn't say it in Matthew, but in this story in Mark, Mark says, and Jesus, with a heavy sigh, I can imagine Jesus rolling his eyes. This evil and perverted generation is always demanding a sign. That's what I, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. This is fascinating. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want to see a sign? Okay. I'm going to die. Okay, yeah, well, so does everybody. Uh, you know, no, well, then that, that, that's going to, you're just proving what we said, Jesus. Messiah is going to come with power, but you're going to die. You see, but Jesus said, I'm only going to be dead three days and three nights. Only, only three. And then I'm going to come back. That's the only sign you're going to get. Right? Jesus came gentle and lowly. Not with a sword. 
not with a physical or political kingdom, completely unexpected. They, they had clues in the Old Testament. They should have been listening. They should have been reading. They should have been believing, but they didn't. And so they rejected the gospel because it wasn't strong enough. It wasn't winning anything. You take a look at Peter's letter. And Peter is explaining how suffering happens for the Christian. Well, that's not my God. My God doesn't let people suffer. Paul will go on because, see, because other false teachers were coming into Corinth. In his second letter, he has to lay out a whole explanation of why they should believe him and not the other, the other false teachers. And you know what his resume is? Shipwreck, hunger, lack of clothes, stoning, twice, you know, whipping, you know. That's no resume for victory in Jesus. But that's God. Humble. So why are we fighting in the church to win? So you see how the gospel humbles us. And Paul says, you know, remember, some of you, you weren't the sharpest knife in the drawer before. You know, you were kind of a one McNugget short of a Happy Meal. You know what I'm saying? And you got accepted into the gospel. You, know, you, were, you weren't some high social status person and you were accepted. So now why are you boasting and jealousing and quarreling? That's not how you got into the gospel. And it's not going to help you in church either. We're going to be united, Paul says, when we live out the gospel. And this is, this is the conclusion. Go ahead and advance my slide for me. Here's the conclusion. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The crucifixion is the power of God. The crucifixion is the wisdom of God. And there is equal ground at the cross. There's no one with fancy clothes at the cross. No one eating better at the cross than someone else. There's no one more favored at the cross than someone else. We're all on equal ground. Because we've all been humbled. Gratefully so. Because we've been saved. Right? Paul says, and this is so no one will boast. First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22. Let's just jump ahead for time's sake and go to verse 30. And because of God, this is chapter 1 verse 30. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in what? The Lord. Stop boasting about who baptized you and who you follow and what Bible study teacher you think is the best and blah, 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 blah. If you're going to boast in anything, make yourself small and boast in the Lord. I wonder what would happen to unity in the church, right? 
if we all humbled ourselves a little better. So, if we are to walk in the way of Christ, if we are going to be godly, then we will die to this pride. We're going to stop the quarreling. We're going to be humble like Jesus is. Right? Because the gospel saves me as it humbles me. And in that humbling, I consider others more significant than myself. Philippians chapter 2. Also talking about Jesus pouring himself out. Right? This is the way of Christ to humble ourselves and love one another. May that be so for us in Jesus' name. Let's stand and sing.